And since writing the book, I feel more Jewish. And one of the consequences of writing the book is I get a lot of invitations from Jewish communities. And whilst I might have resisted that 10 years ago, I now feel more comfortable embracing that. Of course, I'll come and do a sermon in a synagogue. I mean, I've never done such a thing. Hello and welcome to Confessions. I'm Giles Fraser. This is the podcast where I'm joined by a distinguished guest in an attempt to find out what makes them tick. I'm going to try and drill down into their core beliefs to understand better who they are and what they're on about. So I'm delighted to welcome here today um, Philip Sands, international lawyer, academic, um, lover of the theatre, um, president of Penn at the moment, is that right? English Penn only. English Penn. I was in Edinburgh recently. <laughs> And I was announced as the president of Penn. And oh. I was very careful to point out I am not president of Scottish Penn or and, Welsh um, Penn. <laughs> uh, and the author of the great... The book that I love is, um, as lots of other people have, um, is East West Street. Um, Philippe, there's a sort of convention about that we've developed in these podcasts that we start by just asking you to say a little bit about your background and where you came from and you know, a little bit about your parents and so forth and how you're sort of what things are important to you how they grew out of that so a um, very ordinary but happy background oh very good grew up in a place called Belsize Park in North London my dad an NHS dentist which he did for his whole life he's still alive stopped dentistry just a couple of years ago at the age of 84 um, my mum an antiquarian bookseller oh. but I think the tweak in the family uh, is that my mum was French, or is French, and that meant that there was a sort of more international background. I have one brother with whom I go to every single Arsenal football game. Oh, you're not and an Arsenal fan. I'm so sorry. Oh, shockingly no. bad. We'll talk about this, that. This, we'll... is termina- this interview is terminated already. <laughs> I did just buy yesterday my tickets for the Arsenal Spurs uh, game that is coming up uh, soon. I know that's probably very painful to hear. But I'm a finally, Chelsea, we I'm feel a Chelsea fan, so it's like e- that's my that's even my, worse. Yes. But finally, we feel that that corner has turned, and for the first time in ten years, we go to the games with a little, you know, enthusiasm, step in our in, in, in our spirit. I think it's uh, nasty if we start talking <clears throat> about football. So, <laughs> so, um, and the values that you had in your in your childhood and your upbringing, what? How would you characterize those? A very secure upbringing, um, conventional, not pushing at boundaries, um, safe, uh, happy kid with my brother, um, unchallenging. Okay. I mean, we didn't grow up in a world of ideas. We didn't read books that were extraordinary. Um, I think things changed when I went to school. I had one crucial teacher. Uh, a man called Edmund Burke. No. Who was my politics teacher. <laughs> no. <laughs> and economics. And he was from Yorkshire. All right. Uh, and he took us, when we were 15 years old, down a coal mine. He put us in a bus, a bunch of North London schoolboys, drove us up to Yorkshire and took us down a coal mine to make us see what life was really about. And it was one of those moments <coughs> that was sort of absolutely transformative. I mean, it was sort of shocking at one level, but extraordinarily important. And then I went off uh, to university. And I think the real changes in my life actually came through love. Uh, I've had the great uh, happiness, fortune, pleasure, call it whatever you want, of, of being involved, well, now with an extraordinary wife and before that with an extraordinary uh, girlfriend, both of whom opened my vistas, both of whom were people of ideas, real people of substance. And I think the fact that they could show any interest in me caused me to want to up my game in some way and and, and just opened new vistas. So it's, it's, I think my life really took off when I was about 20 years old. And is that the law was, the law was uh, something you were interested in doing before then? The law was totally an accident. Okay. Uh, I had never met a lawyer until I went up to university. Um, there are no lawyers in the family. You didn't do law at university? I, well, I, I'll, I'll come on to that in a second. Because okay. I really deeply regret having done law at university. Yeah. 
Um, that we knew no lawyers. No one on my mum's side had been to university. That was the kind of context that we were from. There were no contacts. There were no connections. I wanted to go to Bristol University. I didn't get in. I took a year off. Because I had nothing to do for a year, I applied, as used to do in the good old days, for seventh term, Cambridge entry, and amazingly got in. And I got in to do economics, but we'd had such a good economics teacher at school, Ed Berg, that it was clear that the first year's course, we'd covered it, and we'd covered it better. So I switched to law after about six weeks, and I deeply regretted it within a week, except that in my second year, and there's a Yorkshire theme here, I had a wonderful teacher of international law. Okay. It was the first uh-huh. subject I thought, this is interesting. A guy called Robbie Jennings, as I said, a Yorkshireman, he went on to become the British judge at the International Court of Justice. And all of a sudden, I sat in a lecture and felt, <clears throat> wow, this really resonates. And it's very obvious now looking back that it resonated because it had a connection with things international. I've mentioned that my mum was French, is French. She, in fact, is the child of two Viennese Jews. Not something that was focused on in the family. Silence. I knew my grandparents very well. Uh, They lived in Paris in a tiny little flat. And my brother and I knew, growing up as kids, we would go quite often to see them, that you didn't ask about the past. Now, this is really interesting to me, this silence, because um, one of the things that you start your book with in uh, East West Street is a is a quotation from Abraham Torok, uh, which are two Hungarian psychotherapists, extraordinary thinkers, and they talk about transgenerational haunting, that idea that somehow there are ghosts that we have in our past and that they're passed down. These sorts of traumas are, as it were, passed down through silences and uh, through things that you don't acknowledge and you don't see. Um, and that resonates very much with me and my past. And you, I mean, you've sort of written a book out of it, really, haven't you? I, I have absolutely written a book out of it, although I didn't realise that's what I was doing at the yeah. time. It, East West Street is an accidental book. I can take no credit for having identified something I was going to explore. I fell into it by accident, which, of course, raises the question, how did it happen? At some point, well into the writing, it was six years of writing this book, and there were a number of coincidences that had cropped up And my sense of connection with my grandfather was becoming stronger and stronger. And it was curious for me. We were close. He died only in 1997. I knew him well. We talked about the things of today, but we didn't talk about pre-1945. And so I started asking myself the question, what is my relationship with my grandfather? There's something that is going on here. I asked a friend of mine who's a psychoanalyst, is there any psychoanalytical work done on the relationship not between parent and child, but between grandparent and grandchild. And I was directed to the work of two Hungarian psychoanalysts, uh, Maria Torok and Nicholas Abraham, and they devoted their lives to exploring that relationship. And I started to immerse myself in their writings. Utterly fascinating. Case studies with patients exploring that question. And the heart of their idea, and it really resonates with me, is that what we are haunted by is the silences of others, the secrets of others. And their thesis is that there is a way that trauma from the past is communicated, not through verbal form, not through speaking, not through writing, but by other means of communication. And things get passed on, not to the next generation, but to the next generation but one. And I found that completely fascinating. And to that extent, East West State, East West Street is a sort of it's a sort of a ghost story. I mean there's a, there's a, there's a part of there's a part of me that reads the sort of the what are these things that have that are there that are out of my sight that have there's some silences and you go and investigate what these things are. There's a sense of being slightly haunted or caught by these ideas. A ghost and haunted has a slightly negative attitude. Yes, yes, I understand. I, that. I'd say T- touched by the past, it, informed by the past. So, for example, what it's always I, maybe it's the barrister in me. I just always love giving examples, and maybe for listeners, that's a better way to explore. When I went off to Lviv for the first time, getting this invitation to go and give a lecture on crimes against humanity and genocide, the work that I do, I asked my mum in 2010. Are there any documents? I want to find my grandfather's house. And amazingly, she came up with these two big bags of materials, 
I'd never seen them before. And in them was a tiny scrap of paper, passports, old photographs. I worked my way through them and I immediately worked out something that was a bit of a family mystery that I had always thought that my mother, her mother, my grandmother, her father, Leon, my grandfather, Leon, had left Vienna together in 1939. But I found three passports in which two of them were consecutively numbered. But one, was the one in the middle, was missing. And my grandmother's passport was a different date issued two and a half years later. And from that, I could work out instantly, and the stamps in the passports, that my grandfather left by himself, January 39. My mother left by herself, July 1939, aged one. How does a one-year-old child get from Vienna to Paris? And my grandmother stayed behind for three years in Vienna. And that fact of remaining behind, I came to understand much more explicitly, had haunted my mother. Because I think the great fear of my mother was that there had been affairs, there had been lovers, there had been other stories, and that perhaps her mother had had a Nazi lover. And so that was one of the mysteries that I wanted to crack. Of course, in that story came for me what is one of the stories that touches me the most in the entire book, the extraordinary Miss Tilney, um, the um, evangelical lady from Norwich, Christian missionary from Norwich, from Manuka, from Bluebell Road, who remarkably was prompted by her particular and maybe unique reading of Ro- Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 10, 10 verse, verse 1, one yes. to save, save anyone. Jews. Well, save Jews, but not only actually. Well, the people of Israel, but she took it further and she took it further and saved people who were subject to political persecution and other forms of persecution. She was an extraordinary human being. And she has caused me to think very differently about certain categories of people who I might pigeonhole in a particular way. Nothing is what it seems. It's, that's what I learned in writing this book. I mean, I suppose the reason I, I, uh, <coughs> I was drawn to the word haunting mm. about this is because... Um, my wife is Israeli, and uh, her um, her mum's side of the family they come from Lvov. And uh, you know, here's the amazing thing. Yeah, everyone in the world comes from Lvov. It turns out. <laughs> it turns out. I, I've done more than two hundred events, and that's always at every single event in India, in South Africa, in Mexico. No. Someone is from Lvov. But I interrupted you. No, no, no. I you, want to hear about but, your, your, well, your no, wife's I mean, no, side. There's nothing, there's nothing really much to say, but they were... Um, but, but uh, so my wife's granny's Luba Schenbaum, and she was, in, she was in Israel, and she came from there, and her parents, Boris and Rosa, uh, Schenbaum were... Um, uh, uh, Rosa is remembered at Yad Vashem, and uh, was... And I suppose it's that part of the story, which is the the haunting bit of it, that, of course, you know, you can't think of that town without thinking about the Holocaust and and the way in which, you know, the Holocaust just devastated. So there's a haunting for me in those sorts of, in these sorts of stories. And, of course, that's, your work is about genocide and about uh, crimes against humanity, and you take all that back to that town. It is a, it is a, it is, it's interesting. It, It is a haunting, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Maybe I'm pausing on the word... Because you know me a little, I'm sort of an optimistic person. I find there's a crack in everything and there's always a ray of light that gets through that. And so I've grown up in a world, perhaps on my mum's side, where she does feel haunted by a past that she cut off. But I don't think I can claim to be a haunted person, although I'm plainly, I now realise, a very obsessional person. And for anyone in my household who is absolutely sick to death of bloody Lviv, Lvov, Lemberg, where we're now approaching 10 years of immersion in the life of a city, it is, it is perhaps a bit much. So maybe I have to argue against myself and recognise that in some way I am indeed haunted by my own story. I, I think it'd be, it would be good for people listening to this if they haven't read the book, just to hear just a little bit about these two extraordinary... Well, there's more than two, but there's two central lawyer characters who both come from this town, uh, both who invent very different ways of thinking about international justice, I guess. Uh, and you have a particular connection with them. So, so you couldn't invent it. 
No. I get an invitation to give a lecture on the work I do, the cases that I do <clears throat> on crimes against humanity and genocide. Pause for a moment. Crimes against humanity is basically about protecting individuals. Genocide is about protecting groups. And that's a central theme, a sort of binary theme that runs through the book, the individual and the group. I start doing the research in the summer of 2010 and lo and behold, I discover that the man who put the concept of crimes against humanity into international law in the summer of 1945, working with Robert Jackson, the American prosecutor at Nuremberg, Professor Hirsch Lauterpacht of Cambridge University, came from Lvov, came from Lemberg, came from Lviv, studied at the law school that had invited me to give the lecture, and the folks who invited me didn't know it. I thought, that's astonishing. Really? They didn't know it. It was astonishing. And so I carry on with the research, and then I discover that, that the man who invented the concept of genocide, Raphael Lemkin, also spent time in Lvov, also studied at the same law school, not at the same time as Lauterpacht, and the folks who invited me were unaware. So I arrive in Lviv in October 2010, accompanied by my mother, my aunt, and my then 15-year-old son. And I'm sort of a, you know, an arriving hero. I, they've asked me to give a lecture about crimes against humanity and genocide, and it started in the city of Lviv. And then the connections become even more remarkable. Uh, you alluded to my relationship with one of the two men. It's Lauterpacht. Lauterpacht had one son called Ellie, <coughs> who was my first teacher of international law at Cambridge University, along with Robbie Jennings, the Yorkshireman. And Lauterpacht became my mentor. Lauterpacht got me my first job as a research fellow in Cambridge in 84. Lauterpacht was the one who persuaded me to go to the bar. And then we, we worked together for 30 years. But it was only in 2015 that I discovered through the research on East West Street that his father was born actually in a small town called Zhulkiev, 25 kilometers to the north uh, of Lviv, on a street called Lembergerstrasse. And that street was uh, described by the writer Joseph Roth as East West Street. And then I discovered that my great-grandmother was born not only in the same area, not only in the same town, but on the very same street. So how do you explain that? How do you explain that I end up, a hundred years later, working with the descendant of someone from the very <coughs> same street? My wife says it's a total coincidence. I think there's some other sort of force or communication at play. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it really is extraordinary. Those levels of coincidence. But are you, are you coincidence or there's something else at play? I think there's something psychoanalytic at play. I mean, you know, the way in which we repeat patterns. And that's why I think the Abraham and Torak thing has some some sort of power for me that that somehow we're not just it's not just that we're haunted by things that are not said. <coughs> but as it were, there are the things that are not said have have a way of shaping us uh, in ways that we don't appreciate. And 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 taking that further. So when I first met Lauterpacht, the son, at Cambridge in 1982, I was 21 years old. Um, he meets me in his classroom. I'm just one of 40 kids in his classroom. Uh, there'll then be an end-of-year cocktail party or something. A couple of years later, he writes to me. I'm in America, living with a girlfriend in, in Harvard Square. And he writes to me and says, I'm setting up a research centre for international law. Would you interested in applying for a position there. So I'm curious, what caused him to write to me? He would have written to others, but he reached out. I ended up getting the job, and I become an international lawyer because of that letter sent by Ellie Lauterpacht in the spring of 1984. I'm curious to understand the process by which he wrote that letter. You know, what is, a, what is below the surface that causes that to happen? I'm trying to write a book at the moment that has, I mean, in, in, in the very broadest possible sense, parallels with, with, with not about law, it's about theology, but has mm. parallels in the way in which it runs a sort of personal narrative and a sort of, um, a, a, a sort of quasi-academic narrative alongside each other. Mm. And for it's me, it started... You'll find it very difficult to do the it's, two It's very, very difficult. I'm finding it's taken me a long, long time to do, and it's, you know... But it started by, it was after the Occupy movement, and I didn't know what 
my life, I didn't know where I was. And I was told to go up and look at the job as to go and be the Dean of Liverpool. And I went up there early. I thought, I don't want to go outside London. I don't want to go to Liverpool. There's nothing. I didn't really want the job, but I needed a job. So I went up there and I stood outside the station and I was like, uh, I don't know anybody in this town. And they just vaguely remembered that I had one small connection, which was that my great uncle was the rabbi of the Princess Road Synagogue, which was right next to Liverpool Cathedral that I've been asked to go and interview the job for. So I thought, well, I've got a bit of time. So I went up there, banged on the door. Extraordinarily, the caretaker let me in. And still a functioning synagogue. And still a functioning synagogue. Extraordinarily beautiful synagogue. And I go in there and I said, look, uh, you may not know this, but um, uh, Rabbi uh, Friedeberg, we changed the name from Friedeberg to Fraser. Rabbi Friedeberg used to be here in uh, 41 years. He was this. He said, of course, come and see. And there was a great big oil painting of him on the wall. And... I had, so this this is the real thing that I couldn't really understand. So in all the time since the Occupy thing, which churned my life upside down, I'd been quite sort of together about it. And I saw that painting and I totally lost it. And I sat on the street and I cried and I cried and I cried. It's absolutely, everything came out. And I was thinking to myself, what is it about this that actually, you know, brought all that stuff out? It was about Jewish identity and about how that had been lost and you know, converting to Anglicanism, what happened to it and so forth. So that was my ghost. This was my ghost and and, uh, and the way in which uh, I was sort of like, I don't know what but happened. What it I'm interested very... in is what happens in the human mind or the human spirit. You take the train up to Liverpool, you arrive, you've got a moment to kill. What is it that made you go and find the place? Just, you know, that's yeah. there's no answer. There's no, no answer. No, there's no answer. It's it's how those <clears throat> I was having neuro- a fan coffee shop thinking I'm a bit bored, what shall I do? Or maybe I'll do this. It's I'm how those neurons cut in. Yeah. What is it that makes one do that? What is it that made me open certain doors that led me then into certain directions? We it's beyond our pay grade to be able to answer those questions. But my sense is there's something else that is at play that causes those decisions to be taken and those doors to be opened. And once the door is opened, you find yourself in a space with three or four more doors and you have to open each one of those doors. Exactly right. And with your book, the only advice I would give is take your time. I had the benefit of a fantastic editor in New York, a woman called Vicky Wilson. And she just said, I would, you know, I did four drafts of this book of 150,000 words each. Oh, yeah. After the first draft, I thought it was done. She said, no, it's not quite ready yet. Um, (laughs) It's like a good cake. It needs to cook properly. I said, "Okay, what do we do next? She said, I'll give you some comments. It'll take another year. After a year, I sent it off. I thought, we're there. She said, no, I think it, it, it needs more time in the oven. Another year. And it happened Again, a fourth time. Oh, my word. And it's... You're depressing me. Devastating. You're depressing me, But, but, (laughs) look what happened at the end of it. I followed her advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the other theme that comes out... I believe in editors. (laughs) The other theme that comes out, I alluded to it, I said to you, you'll find it very difficult to tell two stories in parallel. So I have an absolutely wonderful agent, Jill Coleridge, um, who... At one point, I rang her up. I was about two and a half years into the writing of the project, and I said, Jill, I can't do this. It's literally too difficult. I, I've got a great idea. Let's do two books. Let's do one book about the Lauterpacht, Lemkin, Hans Frank story, the big political legal story, and then let's do another book about my family. And she said, Philippe, absolutely not. What's different about this book is that you interweave the two. It'll take you much longer it's very difficult. We don't know if it'll work, but you owe it to yourself to give it a go. And it was brilliant advice. And, <coughs> and the thing is, to listen to those other people, you know, who have been there with other writers or other people who are writing and, and, and who have the experience to say, I just think, take your time, particularly because it's personal. I've got another friend right now who's writing a very personal family history about partition in India. And the only advice I've given her is take your time. If you're dealing with a personal book, you've waited 50-plus years, you can wait five more, get it right. Yeah, I agree. Um, <coughs> the interesting <coughs> thing about these 
uh, and you've you've said something about this, but I quite like to hear you say something here. The, the interesting thing about these two concepts of genocide and crimes against humanity is they both have, you know, one has the sort of we aspect and one has the I aspect uh, to them. You know, genocide is a is a is a is a is a term that thinks in terms of groups and crimes against humanity is, and your uh, my sense is that your preference for those is actually the crimes against humanity type the individual of, the focus yes, on the individual you're, so, yes that's what I, that's what i'm that's what i imagine not only is you allowed to pact you know your teacher and where you've come from and but but also that's that's your that's your political preference now pat was concerned that by <clears throat> setting in stone in law the protection of the group you would reify the group and you would give the group a primacy over the well-being of the individual. Yeah. And his fear was that the tyranny of the state, which is what his work on human rights and crimes against humanity was addressing, would be replaced by the tyranny of groups. And I sort of think, in part, we are where we are today because of, in modern identity politics, this sense of group identity. So intellectually, absolutely, you're absolutely right, you've read it correctly, I'm with Lauterpacht until right at the end of the book, I find myself at a mass grave in a small town that I mentioned earlier, Jolkiev, where Lauterpacht was born, where my great-grandmother was born, where my grandfather spent his summers. And uh, I'm at a mass grave, unmarked, three and a half thousand bodies still there today, family of Lauterpacht, family of my grandfather. And I feel the sense of connection and this sense of kinship and I'm unable to resist it. The instinctual sense overcomes the intellectual sense. And I end the book with a sense of understanding towards what Lemkin was trying to do, to recognise the reality that if people get killed in vast and horrible numbers, it is not because of what they have done individually. It is because they are a member at a moment in time of a, <coughs> of a particular group. But, of course, I can claim no nothing for originality about this idea. You, you'll have recognised that bit in the book where I stumble accidentally across the magical moment where I learn that Hirsch Lauterpacht, in the summer of 1946, writes to his son, he's learnt that his entire family has perished, apart from his niece, Inca, who I meet later in Paris. And he's prosecuting, he discovers, the man who was killed, his family. You couldn't invent it. And he writes to his son, Ellie, and he says, it's very difficult. I get through the day by listening to music, Johann Sebastian Bach and the Matthew Passion. And at the very same moment, I discover that the man he's prosecuting, Hans Frank, tells the US Army psychologist, Gustav Gilbert, I realise the enormity of what's happened. The only way I get through the day is to imagine, imagine because he can't listen to music, he has to imagine he's listening to music, that I'm listening to Bach and the Matthew Passion. So I thought, what is it with the Matthew Passion? What can that be about? How do you explain that? So I immersed myself, you know, in the writings of John Elliot Gardner and other... I just read everything yeah, I could yeah, find yeah, about yeah. the Matthew Passion and I learned that the Matthew Passion is, in essence, the same story as Lauterpacht and Lemkin. At its heart is the struggle between the individual and the group. The choruses in the Matthew Passion are sung as ich, in the singular, not as wir, we. And I thought, what's that about? And in one of the analyses, it was explained that the libretto at Bach's desire is a nod to a pietist belief on enhancing the role of individual, the individual's direct relationship with God bypassing the group, bypassing and, and organised that, religion. Bach, that's Bach's priority. Yes. That's his instinct. Yes. That's where his... But I didn't know anything yeah. about that. I've listened to Bach for 50 years, yeah. and I'm clueless about what Bach is doing. Yeah. But Bach is confronting the struggle between the individual and the group. And the moment you know that, you listen to Bach in a totally different way. It's a transformative moment now and I've gone on a sort of series of pilgrimages to go and hear the Matthew Passion in different places the most extraordinary being when I went with my friend Daniel to 
Bach's own church. I don't know if you've been there in Leipzig, the Thomas Kirche, where he wrote the Matthew Passion. And it's an extraordinary experience because for two reasons. First, it's an ancient, well, it's an ancient church, 18th century church. And you sit and you're looking at the altar, but you're not looking at the musicians. The musicians are all behind you and above. And you are sitting. That's the first thing that is incredible. So it's a, a completely internalised experience without distraction, except that the great thing about that church, where tickets sell out six months in advance for the Matthew Passion every April, is that it's locals from all walks of life. Local farmers, local shopkeepers, local lawyers, local architects, everyone has come together. It's this great levelling effect, and it was an overwhelming experience to be in that church and to listen to the Matthew Passion with one of my dearest friends in an emotional sense, in an intellectual sense. So it's, so it's not just about the... So even <coughs> though that might be Bach's preference, it's not just about the triumph of the eye over the we. It's a dialectic between the eye and the we. It's the way... The, the, the eye and the we are... are um, you know, you can't make sense of the of the I without the we and the other way around. And it's that becomes a problem for, for law, for justice. It becomes a problem for law and justice, but even more importantly, it becomes a problem or an issue for daily life. Isn't yes. that what we're going through right I've now? Com completely it is. Isn't that yes. them and us? Isn't that what the great refugee debate is about? Isn't that what poverty essentially is about? Our sense of feelings of being part of a community or not. And that's what causes me such internal difficulty that whilst I can see the force of Lauterpach's argument for the individual, where does this instinct within me for kinship, whether it is family exactly background, whether it is a football team, whether whatever it may be, this need to belong. And so I went further into the research and you, 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 know, you read biologists like E.O. Wilson... And they're exploring these issues and they're saying it's in the DNA, it's, it's natural, this need for one community, for one group to feel a sense of connection and to feel a sense of the need to protect itself together against outside threats. And that has helped me better understand the horrors we're going through in Britain and in Europe right now and in the United States where we have a white supremacist president. You've managed. We've managed to talk. We've been talking for half an hour or so, and about all these sorts of subjects, but and about the sort of sense of we and about history and all that sort of stuff. But really interesting that you haven't actually mentioned the word Judaism yet, which, which uh, I'd be fascinated to know how that actually comes into this this sense of we or identity that's being explored and so forth. Do you have a you have a complicated relationship with Judaism? I, I wouldn't say it's complicated. I certainly have a relationship with it. Um, I grew up in a household that was, I mean nominally Jewish. I had a bar mitzvah. And then when my parents got me to my bar mitzvah, which was done, I think, for my grandparents, that was it. I was on my own. You did whatever you wanted to do. And I think it's probably right <clears throat> to say that I am not a believer in any religion. I, it may well be that because the work that I do on a daily basis is so much focused on conflict and so much conflict is religiously based that I have a scepticism yeah. about whether religion actually is the source of the problem or the solution, yeah, 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 which we can debate on a different day. But I'm 100% definitely Jewish. And since writing the book, I feel more Jewish. And one of the consequences of writing the book, which I would have resisted even 15, 10 years ago, is I get a lot of invitations from Jewish communities. And whilst I might have resisted that 10 years ago, I now feel more comfortable embracing that. Of course, I'll come and do a sermon in a synagogue. I mean, I've never done such a thing. Well, and, and well you've all, preached in the synagogue. I have, but I've also gone to Elsie Tilney's congregation in Norwich and done a sermon in her congregation wow. and have loved it. And so the journey that I've taken has opened a lot of doors. I mean, there are a number of people I've come into contact with who are trying to encourage me to join their synagogue. Okay. And I find I have an internal resistance because the act of joining an organised community would be to deny my essential sense of individual character. And I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. The closest I have come was actually a month ago when I went to Montreal 
I, I am a great fan of Leonard Cohen's. I'm a Leonard obsessive. And I was invited to Montreal to give a couple of lectures at the university and at a, at a community centre. And I thought, I'm going to get in touch with the guy who's the cantor at Leonard's synagogue, a guy called Gideon um, Zellemeyer, who's just won an Emmy because he sings on the last Leonard Cohen album wow. called You Want It Darker. I don't know whether we can play an extract of that. But <laughs> cantor Gideon Zellemeyer sings on that and wins with Leonard Cohen, although he gets it posthumously, sadly, uh, an Emmy. And I just wrote to him out of the blue and just said, I love your music. Can I just come and pay homage to you? <clears throat> and he wrote back, lovely American guy. Absolutely, come and visit me. Come and hang out. We end up spending three hours together. He's a fantastic guy. And he showed me around the synagogue. And I said, you know, I could imagine joining this place just for the connection with Leonard. <laughs> I added. And he said, you can. You can join it. I mentioned this last week. Uh, actually, I was at a dinner with Julia Neuberger. And I mentioned to her, she said, no, 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 no. Join mine. I want you to join Come mine to first. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, a, it's a been an interesting part. But, but what has definitely happened is I feel less resistant to those connections and those conversations. Um, and, of course, it's impossible to have gone through the experience of writing this book and confronted someone like Elsie Tilney and not recognise the positive side of a person who was a believer who was a miracle worker. I mean, this was a this is a person who risked her own life. I exist because of the courage of Elsie Tilney and her interpretation. And yet, I mean, as you very generously said before, you know, a lot of her worldview you'd think of as being mad. I mean, you know, it's something that you would, you know, you would not necessarily be drawn to at all. And you would, it, it, yeah. you could have easily disparaged such people yeah. and actually, you know... Totally different. They, my, attitude, become... my attitude has totally changed. That nothing is what... You don't judge a book by its cover. I've learned the significance of that. One of the things that I was really curious about with Elsie Tilney was what motivated her. You know, she goes off in 1920 to be a missionary in North Africa to bring Jews and Muslims to Jesus. That's what she devotes her life to doing. And I, I was <coughs> wondering, <coughs> did, she, did she act for ideological reasons or humanitarian reasons? And I, I, I don't know why that question, it didn't bother me, but it was there. It was like I was curious. So I wanted to find someone who could help me about that. And the only person I knew who had an evangelical in their family was the great writer Jeanette Winterson. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So I got in touch with Jeanette <laughs> and I said, can I spend an afternoon with you? Can you help me understand what was going on here? And we had a fantastic afternoon together. And I think drawing on her own experience, she went through Elsie Tilney's writings, her diaries, the letters, and she said, no, this is... I mean, it doesn't matter what motivated her, but this is a person motivated predominantly by humanity. Yeah. This was not about bringing your mum to Jesus. If that happened, that would be a great bonus. Sometimes it's really difficult to know where the lines are drawn on these sorts of issues. We say, we, is it humanitarian or is it ideological, religious? But actually, I think for people like this, the humanitarian religious is the way in which they express their yeah. humanitarian care. Yeah. So it's very difficult to, to make a distinction between yeah. them, isn't it? I wonder why it mattered to me to find out I wonder why I Well, because give... we're quite phobic about religion, so that's part of it, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's that phobia, about, particularly about evangelical religion, about conversion, about all those things, yeah. which, we're, which we, we, we're quite allergic to. Because I... it doesn't matter why she did what she did. Does it, or does it matter why she did what she did? I, I don't think it does matter why. She basically risked her life. But it was an act life. of love, whatever, whatever she did. I mean, it feels to me like it's an act of love and compassion. And courage. And courage. I mean, I mean she risked her life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and she continued. I couldn't, as you know from the book, I couldn't, once I opened the door on Elsie Tilney, I could have stopped once I knew what happened after 39, but I couldn't stop myself. And you sort of carry on with the story and find this amazing woman who ends up incarcerated for four and a half years uh, by the Germans in Stalag 127, and who then saves more people by hiding them in a cupboard in her room for six months at personal risk of death. I mean, these are incredible people. I, I, I'm sort of, I feel, I feel I'm probably just coming at things 
uh, from the opposite direction to you, but actually end up in a very similar place, which is to say, whereas your sympathies are with the sort of I, but then they sort of get drawn into the we. Mine are the mine. Mine are sort of quite. You start you know, with the we. I, I do quite start Why is with that? the we. Why I'm, do you I'm think a that sort is? of like that. I sort of have a romantic sense of solidarity and uh, but, but sort of who, community. But who is the we for you? Yes, That's well, the there's question. lots of different overlapping we's. So I have a much more positive estimation of the nation state. It's why I'm a. It's why I'm a lever of the European Union. There's there's all these sorts of things about about a sense of you know some sense of the we. There's a whole load of different overlapping ones, but we you know we're all hybrids of them. But I, but I also feel the pull of all the sorts yeah. of things. I mean, I am ambivalent about it, but I still see, feel the pull of all the sorts of things that liberal individualism has, has, yeah. uh, you know, um, LGBT rights, you know, you, you know, all sorts of things, yeah. lots and lots of things like that. But I, so I feel ambivalent. But in a, in a, but isn't isn't the right thing at the end of the day, simply that we recognise it's an issue. And that we reflect on it. There isn't a right or wrong answer. Oh, I think it's hard. To, it's hard. It's there hard. Is, to... And and one, you'd never impose a, a solution. It's a deeply personal thing, and you'd never impose on anyone else to go one way or the other. The most you would ask for is that there is a decent process of reflection, and that anyone who's reflected about it and then ended up in a particular place, that's now good enough for me. Uh, you know, I, I whatever whether you go that way, you go the Lauterpat way, the Lemkin way, the Bach way, or the another way. That's a deeply personal matter. How, how does I, so? I understand how that works out in personal terms, and as you say, I get that. But how does it work out? So, with your academic legal hat on, how does it work out to have two different, as it were, species of law? Maybe that's not the right way of putting it, but they certainly come out of two very different sort of ideological perspectives. Yeah. How do they work alongside each other? There must be a point at which... There's a struggle. There's a constant tension. So there is, for example, a convention against ge- on the prohibition of pre- punishment of genocide. There is no convention on the prevention and punishment of crimes against humanity. It's being negotiated now 70 years after the genocide convention. And what's happened... Is but crimes ge- against humanity came first, didn't it? It came first. It did better at Nuremberg... No mention of genocide in the Nuremberg judgment. And then Lemkin, instead of going weeping in a corner when he loses the genocide crimes against humanity battle, devotes the next three years of his life to negotiating a genocide convention and succeeds. And we are coming up to the moment of the 70th anniversary. 9th of December 1948, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, Individual Rights, is signed in Paris at the Palais de Chaillot. 10th of December, 1948, the next day. Sorry, I've got it the wrong way around. The Genocide Convention came first. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights came second. But they're on adjacent days. Adjacent days on the 10th of December, 1948, in Paris at the Palais de Chaillot, will be an anniversary, or is an anniversary, celebrating the 70th year of the two instruments, the two ideas, the individual and the group. They live side by side in struggle. But what has to be said is that in the scheme of things, and I've reflected on why this is, genocide has gone to the top of the pile. There's no question. If you speak to prosecutors at international criminal tribunals, they will tell you that victims want the crime that has been perpetrated against them to be characterised as genocide. Crimes against humanity is not enough. War crimes is not enough. Somehow... In public consciousness, genocide is the crime of crimes. And I've asked myself the question, why is that? Is it because we have more of a connection with the idea of the group? Or is it much more mundane? Is it simply that the word Has more rhetorical power. Yeah. Conjures up an image of horror in a way that crimes against humanity is a legal, technical... And even if you look at the writing, if you look at the words written out in their hand, I do a performance piece with some musicians and a German actress, and we, I, had a, I had a graphic artist take the writing of Genocide by Lemkin and the writing of Crimes Against Humanity by Lauterpacht in their own hand and animate it so it comes alive. And in, you know, we're doing it next, I think, at the Purcell Room next year. It, it, when you see it on a huge screen... At every performance we've done it at, people will come up to me afterwards and say, 
seeing the handwriting bring those words, those terms alive is a remarkable thing. And seeing the word genocide in Lemkin's own hand touches Were they very deeply. different personalities Totally as well. different yeah. personalities. Yeah. Totally different. I mean, Lemkin was a sort of an obsessive, basically a pain in the arse, drove everyone crazy, a complete loner, uh, unable to work in teams, the total opposite of an establishment figure. Lauterpacht arrives in England. Okay, my, my, my enduring image of Lauterpacht is someone noticed that on a very rainy day at Trinity College in Cambridge, he was to be observed walking across the grass in one of the famous you know, squares on the grass in the pouring rain on tiptoes. Why on tiptoes? He's protecting his shoes from the rain, but just in case anyone's watching, they, he wants to be seen that he has a status which allows him to walk across the grass. And oh, not, my God. No, no I, I know. <laughs> uh, instead of wow. what doing any comfortable person would do, which is to stick to the path, and the paving stones and walk But because around. he's a don, he's allowed to walk on the grass, so he wants to, like... He's a don, but he's a don from Lviv, and he's a Jew, and he's an outsider. And it's a way, I think, of signalling, I need to be treated with respect. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and they were both outsiders. One loved the establishment, Lauterpacht. One detested it, Lemkin. I think... Lauterpacht is the more compelling intellectual figure. But if I had to choose to have dinner with one or the other, it would be Lemkin. Lemkin would be very entertaining. And when it comes to, uh, <coughs> just finally, when it comes to the, the success of these two forms of law, in, in, you're a prosecutor as, as, uh, as a lawyer as well. I mean, that's, is that right? I mean, you, well, I do, you, I do cases. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a criminal prosecution, but I I've, I've, helped on, I've helped prosecute cases. Right. But I wouldn't call myself a prosecutor. So what I really want to know is when you, I don't know, I haven't quite got the question very well formed in my head, but when you look at all the, all, all of these sort of like horrors from Rwanda to, uh, to you know, to all, all of the, which, which have been the, which has been the more successful? Can you say, form of uh, prosecution? I, 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 I or... look at it in different terms. Okay, Nin I haven't got the nine, question right. I know nine, that. Here's how I look at it: 1945 was an absolutely revolutionary moment. Until that moment, as a matter of international law, the state had absolute control and sovereignty over human beings within its territory. If they wanted to kill half their population, international law shrugged its shoulders and said, fine, that's not a matter for us. They're your people. Do what you want with them. In 1945, came along these two guys and others, because they weren't alone, who said, no, those days are over. Absolute sovereignty is over. The idea of the omnipowerful sovereign state, and I take the opposite view from you. Yeah, for me, yeah. the state is a source of great danger. Yeah. Those days are over. There are limits imposed not just by domestic law, but by international law. And international says you can't kill the individual, they have minimum rights, and you can't destroy the group, they have rights as a group. And from that grows economic limitations and human rights limitations and other limitations. In the scheme of the history of humanity, those limits have existed for only 70 years. That is a tiny, tiny moment. And it's a long game. When I tell a professor of English legal history what I do, he'll say to me, ah, yes, we had cases like that in English legal history in about 1427. We're in the medieval ages for international law. But it's a long game. The challenge right now is that things are happening which have as their aim the destruction of that 1945 moment. And for me, Brexit and Trump are about destroying the 1945 moment. And it's, for me, a very dangerous moment. And it is why, although history does not, in absolute terms, repeat itself, I think we are now witnessing a road which will take us, possibly, to a major conflagration uh, in Europe. 
Though, of course, to stick up for the nation state a little in the terms that we've been talking about, um, you know, th there was w there's one reaction to, to, to the end of the of Second World War, which is the nation state is a problem and needs uh, the European <clears throat> Union is a part of that. Of course, there's another response, uh, which is that the nation state is the solution, which is the establishment of the state of Israel, for which, of course, have saved many millions of Jews. Now, that may be... Well, it depends what your historical perspective is, but, but here's I mean, how is... I would react to... to, to and, and, and there's no, again, it's what we said before. There's no right or right or yes, yes, wrong yes. answer to these things. Reasonable people can hold different <clears> views. This has been the first time in the history of the world that Europe has operated for 70 years without conflict. That is, I think, not coincidental. In relation to Israel, my great fear is that the existence of Israel will give rise to the very conditions that it was intended to address, namely the protection of Jewish people by the creation of a state. And of course, if you go back as I describe in the book, to Poland in the 1920s, they're having exactly the same debates. You know, half yes. the Jews in Poland are saying, yes. no, 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 we want to assimilate, we mustn't have our own state, it'll just be a source of disaster. And the others are saying, no, 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 we want a state, and then we'll be safe. My hunch is that just like the concept of genocide gives rise to the very conditions it was intended to prevent and will actually, ironically, cause more genocides than if the concept hadn't existed is one argument. So the creation of the State of Israel could be said to give rise to antipathies and hatreds that make it more likely that certainly, as we're seeing in England, in France, in the United States today, shockingly, that Jews are more at risk because of the actions of the State of Israel. So it is, I think enormously complex and there will be no solution obviously to these complexities in the immediate future. Philip Sands, we disagree about much, we agree <coughs> about much, uh, always a great pleasure, great, great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, very enlightening. Fantastic to join you, really Good great work. conversation. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website unheard.com.